All right. Preemptively emptying my trash so that I hopefully have enough space on my desktop to record. Oh, that didn't delete enough. Good luck, everybody. How uh, low are you running your hard drive down to? Some. <laughs> not here to be judged, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the wrong space. Uh, <laughs> this is yeah, a judge seems zone. True. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at Thoughtbot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey, and I'm Steffi Carey, and together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? Hey, hey, it's been a really interesting week. It's been exciting coding-wise and in my household because Tim and I just recently adopted a dog and we've named him Utah. He's six months old. He's 50 pounds. He's very sweet and a total handful. <laughs> 50 pounds at six months is a, is a lot. It's a lot of still a very puppyish aged dog. So that's that seems like a whole thing right there. Yeah, we haven't confirmed with the vet just yet, but when we adopted him from the pound, they're estimating he could be around 90 pounds just because they're guessing usually dogs grow for that full first year. So if he's going to grow for another six months, he could double in size, which we're totally on board with. We understood that when we adopted him, but we're kind of hoping he sticks closer to 80 because we also want him to be able to hike and do all those fun activities. And if he gets really big, I imagine that becomes harder for dogs as they get much heavier or bigger. I imagine, although I like that your framing is like, I want the dog to be able to do all of the things, not it will be complicated to have a 90 pound dog, a very Steph lens through which to view the world there. How kind of you. That's true. Well, we're learning. It is complicated when you have a 50 pound dog who doesn't have all of their manners yet. He has a lot of manners. He's very sweet, but definitely loves to jump on you. And when you have 50 pounds jumping on you or trying to crawl on your lap because they think they're still puppy size, then you realize you really need to go to dog training school. So that's on our agenda soon. In programming life, spelled with a Y because it was an exciting week. I wrote an interesting test case that exercised the scenario where we have two requests that are trying to book a reservation at the same time, but we only want to allow one of those requests to win and actually book the reservation. So it was one of those interesting, we can use Rails behavior for this and then trust Rails to do this, but we also were interested in writing a test for it because we've been a little distrustful of the behavior in this application. So we want to be really confident of how this is behaving. We were also updating how the records are being locked because it's interesting in the locking approach that it takes where when we want to book a reservation, the application is creating a lock record and then setting a key for that lock record. And so then as other subsequent requests come in, it's going to use that similar formatted key to see if there's already a lock in existence and it needs to wait. Are you talking about a Rails feature for that locking, that like optimistic locking, or is that at the Postgres level or where where is that actually happening in your stack right now? Yeah, some of the terminology gets confusing in terms of talking about locking. In this particular case, I am speaking specifically about a bespoke model in the application that's called lock. So it's not a Rails feature, but it is something that the application, it's creating a record that is called lock. So then that record is being created, and then as subsequent requests are coming in, it's looking to see if that lock record has been created for that specific restaurant in which we want to book a reservation for. And then if there's a lock record that already exists for that specific restaurant, then it's blocking all other requests until that request finishes. So as part of this behavior change, we don't want to lock the entire restaurant when we're booking a reservation because there are other reservation times that people could be booking. 
And we're running into locking contention issues where locks are holding on too long and aggressively and preventing other valid requests that could get through. And we don't have to worry about double booking reservations. So we're updating the scope of that locking model behavior to where we're going to include the time of the reservation as well. So at least when we have two requests that are trying to book, say like a four o'clock reservation, then the first request is going to get through. It's going to create that lock record. And then the second request is going to see there's already one that exists for that four o'clock reservation. It's going to have to wait or it's going to bomb because we're going to give the reservation to that first request instead of just locking the entire restaurant. So someone could book a five o'clock reservation while someone is also booking a four o'clock. Gotcha. That clarifies it. This is definitely not something that I know how to do, but I imagine that there is sort of a, we've thought about this a lot as a community and here's how you do locking. Again, I have no idea, but it feels like one of those things like cryptography. I don't want to make that up myself. And it's interesting that you've introduced a a secondary model. My initial inclination would be to, like, I imagine you have a reservation model that says this person, this time, that sort of thing. But now you also have a secondary model of a lock. And I think my first stab at it would just be, let's put a Postgres constraint. So it's down at the lowest level and just have that. And there's actually a really great blog post by Derek Pryor that describes the additional Rails layer of the like validates uniqueness of, but the potential issues there, the sort of race conditions where Rails has to hit the database to check if it's okay. But then once it says it's okay, then it'll actually try and write it. And you still may run into the contention at the lower level. And so really what you want is the Postgres level constraint. But then I think that would be my first inclination is to just do that and then let it blow up or catch that Postgres constraint limitation and use that to then indicate back to the user, sorry, it actually got booked out from underneath you. I'm wondering, were there user level features that drove you to having the additional model there? Yes. So you and I are on the same page, uh, which isn't surprising, as that's where I also reached for was the idea of adding a unique constraint at the database layer where we only want one reservation at this time to exist. So that way we can't double book a reservation. However, there is a feature for this where you can have multiple reservations for the same time, and then that can be configured per restaurant. So say if you wanted to have five reservations at four o'clock for this particular restaurant, and then at that point, I'm not familiar if there's a way to do that in Postgres. If there is, that'd be great. But we couldn't write a database constraint that's going to take into consideration what is the restaurant's configuration of how many appointments can you have for each time slot. I think that's why the team that was working on this application perhaps introduced that lock model that they're creating, and then they're using a key and scoping it to a restaurant. That would be my guess, since you can't add that database constraint. Yeah, I think if you wanted to do that, you'd need to add to the data modeling that says it's not just that there is a slot, like a time, but there are multiple slots, I guess you could call them, that have a time and a restaurant and a date and those sort of things. And then, so there's like four at four o'clock. And once one gets used up, then that's locked in. And so the database constraint could be around that, but then you have additional modeling complexity. So I can see why the lock model came in, although that feels more like trying to manually manage synchronization of state. And the more I do it over time, the more I want to not do it and let somebody else like Postgres be in charge of it. So I think I would probably still push towards the the more complex modeling, but try and represent reality a little more closely rather than trying to manage state synchronization. But that's without having actually looked at this code base. And there's always trade-offs abound in these sort of things. So I can certainly see the other side of the coin here. 
Definitely. Well, in this case, if it makes you feel better, the lock model itself is using the Rails with lock functionality. So we are leaning on Rails to then acquire transaction and also acquire lock on that record. So we are leaning on that. And then as we are writing a test for this, since I am changing how that locking is working, because essentially right now the lock works, but it is working too well in the sense that other requests can't get through. It is causing a huge bottleneck and that's causing the site to go down. So we want to update so that we're only locking for specific times. So then that makes it a little more unique. And then other requests can still get through for different times while updating that specific key that we're locking on. So let's say it's like the restaurant, it's the restaurant ID, and then we want the reservation time of like four o'clock and writing a test. I was pairing with Mike Burns on writing this, another thought botter. And it was one of those where we started writing the test and I had to say up front, this could be a bad idea, but we think it's worth pursuing just because we want to make sure that this is working how we expect because it is so crucial to the system. And thankfully, Mike Byrne had experience in testing with this sort of thing. He'd written something a while back. So the test that we wrote was pretty interesting, where we're actually creating a new thread. And then within that thread, we're going to call this process that is going to try to book a reservation. And then outside of that thread, we have another call to book a reservation. But the tricky part is we want the first thread, which is going to execute right away, we want it to be slow enough that when the second request goes through that they meet each other. So then we can validate that only one of those requests won and we only have one reservation in the end. So we ended up, we're altering one of the methods that is saving the reservation. We put a sleep in the test. So it's sleeping for like two seconds. And then we want the other request to also sleep for one second to guarantee that they're going to meet in the middle. And then as soon as that's done, we can verify that we only have one reservation for one time, even though both try to book the same reservation time. I think the only thing harder than trying to deal with race conditions and these sort of like async bugs is to write a test around it. But luckily, it sounds like you had you were able to pair up with someone who had experience and had done this before. I would not know where to start on this. Yeah, it's one of those like, I'm really excited to write this test because it was different and interesting. At the same time, I was like, maybe we did a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think it's helpful because it really highlights that, yes, we want to be cautious to make sure that we can't double book in areas where we don't want to. And I'm also noticing that when I do write something that's a little funky about this, we've talked in the past about adding comments, that I do leave comments for this. So we have a sleep to in a test, which is something that would normally really catch my attention when I'm reading a test. So I added a comment above it that talks about this is why we're sleeping here. And it's because we want to mimic when we have two requests trying to secure the same reservation. So in this case, I I definitely favor comments because I want the next person to see that and not immediately be fearful of it. Yeah, there are definitely those handful of times where you have to write a line of code that you're like, listen, future person, I know what you're thinking. I'm with you, but here's why. And the only, like, I don't know of a way to do that other than a comment. I guess you could have the really long method name that is all of those words. Listen, person, I get what you in underscore, 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 but <laughs> I think a comment is probably the right tool here. Yeah, I'm with you. I think in this case, uh, although I like that long method name, a uh, comment feels super helpful. So how's your week been? Uh, My week's been good. My wife and I will be taking next week off. And as a result, I'm in that week before vacation where you're uh, rushing around to get everything cleaned up and buttoned up and make sure any projects that you have that you're handing them off sufficiently or that they're in a close enough to done space. And there's something to the energy of that time that I really like because it's it's towards this goal that I want so much, which is I want to be on vacation and not think about stuff. 
And it just uh, it sort of focuses me in a way that I'm sure would burn me out if I had to do it for an extended period of time. But there's you know, there's something nice about that focus. But yeah, this week I've been working on a couple of things that are sort of early stages of a new app feature set sort of thing. So there's like the marketing page and regular app dance. The marketing page is currently on Unbounce, which is fine for what it is. And then there's the core application, but like Unbounce won't let me have the root domain. They force me to have a subdomain to point at them because of things related to C names and stuff that I don't entirely understand. I would have to ask Edward Lovell because he wrote a book about domain name sanity. But yeah, I, d- I do not fully understand it. It makes me a little bit sad, but thus I've been forced into the world of WWW and canonicalizing on that, uh, which I would rather not do, but uh, well, it doesn't actually matter. Chrome actually hides it at this point. So I couldn't, I was getting confused actually because I was working on the, the redirect between the canonical domain and the WWW subdomain. And Chrome was hiding the www. So I was like, wait, did the redirect happen or am I which? And then I'd copy it out and it would come out with the www in it. I find that an interesting choice of the Chrome team to hide that in the URL bar. But one of the other things that I'm getting to work on here is email templating. So setting up the sort of initial email template layout styled as well. Man, making emails look reasonable is... I think it's way better now, but it's not as way better as the rest of the web is. Like, I definitely don't have Flexbox and Grid, I'm pretty sure, but I don't even know what the current state of affairs is. And so I have to sort of re-familiarize myself and figure out, like, how do I put a picture in here, everybody? Is that a thing? Can I do that? Do I need to put it in a table? Is it like seven tables nested deep and then I can show a picture? What about breakpoints? It's a thing. Not a, I think they are a thing. But anyway, I'm going to be figuring all of that out. And I will report back as I re-immerse myself in the world of HTML email styling. But in entirely unrelated things, one of the things that I've been poking at this week is setting up CircleCI for this new project as well. And I've recognized that I think Circle has a configuration that I disagree with or the sort of default out of the box. So Circle has both their like, this is an example Circle config YAML file for a Ruby project. You can use this and it'll be great. It'll run your Rails app and let you run your tests and all of that stuff. But one of the things it needs to do is install the dependencies and ideally cache that. So run bundle install. But as far as I can tell, the way that they do it is they install it and then they cache. They basically save off the vendor bundle directory with a cache key. And the cache key is generated based on the branch name and then the checksum of the gemfile.lock. So those are like the two pieces templated in that way. And so anytime the gemfile.lock changes, anytime any gem version, new edition, anything changes, that's going to bust that portion of the cache key. But ideally, they fall back to the branch name. But that means every time you open a new branch, you're getting a new cache key. And so you're falling back to nothing as the default. And I find that to be an odd choice. So I have manually overridden it in the case of Ruby to say it's basically like a prefix and then the branch name and then the gem file checksum such that if it needs to, it just falls back to the most recent thing that it built, which seems better because there's always some useful gems and like Bundler is going to do the right thing for me. I'm still running Bundle install after the fact, but I want to start from something reasonable, not start from zero because then it takes a minute or more to install the dependencies every time I have a new branch. And I like to have new branches very often, but I also recognize the same thing was happening with Yarn. And now I'm stepping back and I'm like, the folks at Circle are very smart. And I wonder if this is just a very, very conservative safe thing like this is a form of caching and we know caching is hard but it feels like it should be safe to do because both bundler and yarn are going to do the work of dependency resolution figuring out what they need installing missing things but i don't know am i missing something here 
I don't know. I was just thinking through, because I am intrigued by that idea. I'm trying to think through the benefit of having the specific branch name, because if the gym file changes, and as long as that's always going to then break that cache and it's going to update that gym file checksum, then that feels safe in that regard. So I'm also intrigued as to what additional sort of like cache busting or maybe cache safety that Circle is providing by including the branch name. And do you happen to find anything like looking into maybe like Circle docs or forums to see if they talked about it? There is an open issue in, I think it's against the GitHub repo for the Ruby orb, which are the reusable, they might be Docker image. I don't actually know. This is a this is another part of the world that I don't fully understand. But Circle has orbs and you can use the Ruby orb and tell it to install dependencies. But at this point, I've opted out of their official install dependencies for Ruby because it, it has this behavior. But yeah, they have an open issue. It seems to be talked about and they seem open to it, but they haven't made the change So it makes me think that I'm in the space of reasonable here, but I've had to do it manually. I think the reason for having the branch name in there is say you have a branch where you introduce a new gem, then that first time they install the dependencies, they're working from a cache, ideally, they install that one new dependency, and now your local vendor bundle is up to date. And now each additional push to that branch, the install of the dependencies is instantaneous because it already has a cached version of that. That's my thinking. And then it it keeps it sort of separated between different branches. But yeah, caching is tricky. That's a good point. Because then the question is, which cache key or which gem file checksum cache do they begin with? And so if you start fresh for every branch, then it is a bit slower, but then at least it is scoped to what's on that branch versus otherwise, if you push up a branch, which cache key do they reference to start off with? So yeah, that is interesting. Have you run into any issues with it? It sounds like you'd mentioned that there is a change that perhaps is going to go through. So you may just be a little ahead of the curve. Uh, Definitely no issues. Again, my sense is this is fine to do. Like I can do whatever the most optimistic thing is, because at the end of the day, the next step after restore the cache is bundle install. And that is going to ensure that all of the necessary dependencies are present. And then running the app in any version is going to use bundle activator or whatever bundler's magic is that actually makes things work. And similarly, on the Yarn side, Yarn is actually going to locally install all the dependencies and in the correct versions and somewhat different than how Bundler does it. But both of them are making sure the world is correct for me. And so I think I have that backstop. And really, then I want as much performance benefit as I can. I want my tests to run as fast as humanly possible, please. And so I'm willing to uh, chase some things down to make that happen. Yeah, I think that's cool. If you found a way to speed up the builds, I think that's awesome. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. At only $39 a month, Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. So I have another thought. This one's more out there. I'm here for it. 
So I think that one's a good idea. And I've seen other people talking about it on the internet, which leads me to believe it's probably a good idea and hopefully will happen. This other idea, I think is a good idea, but I feel like I would be hard pressed to convince people. So often my workflow, I'm going to rebase continually as I'm working on a branch. And thus, right before I actually merge my branch, I'm rebasing one last time on top of master. I'm probably flattening down squashing any other commit. So now I have likely a single commit or whatever set of commits that I actually want. And there is a commit at the tip of that branch, at the tip of my branch, that is what I want to merge in. And so I'm going to be doing a fast forward merge because again, I'm doing a rebase type workflow. So what that means is when circle runs for that branch, it has now tested that version of the code. And I know that for certain because it's got a git hash. Those are essentially checksums. They they are immutable. They always refer completely to the version of the code. So if I then merge that into master, and now that same commit is now what master points at, circle is still going to rebuild that commit. And I don't want it to. I'm like, you, you already know the answer. You just did this over there like a minute ago. What if we didn't? And even I would like to go one step further. So I would like to avoid those redundant builds and just basically borrow, hopefully, the green status from the previous build and infer that for this is now on master, but that doesn't have like, I know how branches work. It's actually just a, a name of a commit under the hood. So I would like that to work. And then we could even go one step further because if you squash down, it turns out the working directory is identical at the end of that. So like if you have three commits and you squash them down into one, the working directory of that commit is the same as the working directory of the previous head commit of that branch. So basically it keeps the version of the files and just changes what the commit message says. So we could go one step further and say, if the working directory hasn't changed, which again, Git is very good at knowing whether or not that's true, let's reuse that as well. And let's skip a build that we don't need to do. Save some, some build time, you know? That's the one that's more questionable, I think. You're asking some interesting questions or bringing up some interesting ideas. The merging into like the main branch makes me nervous. And I'm thinking through if that's just habit or if, it, if there's some other reason that that should make me nervous. And I think it has partially to do with the workflow. So if you are the only person working on this, and then you are always fast forwarding your merge onto the main branch. So then, like you said, you are rerunning that exact same commit and there's no need. It's just a redundant build at that point. That feels good. If you are working with other people who don't have that same workflow and then they're merging into the main branch and it's creating then a new commit for them, that merge commit, then I start to feel like maybe we should just always rebuild because we always want to be extra confident that the main branch is green. I'm trying to I'm trying to think through and how I feel about this idea. To be clear, if there's a merge commit or anything that is introducing a new commit, I would definitely want to rebuild. Definitely, okay, definitely cool. want to rebuild. It's only if because of a fast forward merge, it is identically the same commit that we are testing twice. That's redundant. It should not change, right? That's definitely how that should work. So... We can avoid that one. But if there's a merge commit, yes, definitely rebuild. I mean, you're selling me on it. And this isn't a circle feature, I presume. Have you looked into it to see if it's the same commit Shaw that Circle CI won't rebuild? I have looked for a relevant setting. Uh, and I think I've searched around a little bit and I've not seen this. I also tweeted about it earlier today to see if the internet can point me in a direction. But I think this is a subtle enough idea that like this only feels safe if you look under the hood and see how Git works. And you're like, oh, okay, it's actually the same code. This is fine. But if you're not 100% on that, then this is the sort of thing that might give you pause. So I can see the reason that Circle's like, we're going to do the conservative thing that visibly, obviously tends towards correctness. I get that. 
I just uh, personally, I want the magic little checkbox. They have a feature that says cancel redundant builds, but that has to do with if you are pushing to a branch and then you force push over that or you push another commit on top of it, they're going to say, you know what, we're not going to bother finishing the build of this previous commit that we were working on. You've recently now pushed something that's more current. We're going to skip this, move on to that one. And that's a great feature. I love that. But I want to just I want to dial it up to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Always trying to dial it up. Yeah, I love that feature where it cancels or redundant builds. I guess we'll have to see where the the Twitterverse or the internets take us in terms of if you get any responses, if someone's already found this or if Circle CI is already thinking about this. Yes, please. If anyone out there in the world knows details, either why this would be a terrible idea and things that I am not thinking of or works at Circle CI and can just implement this, that would actually be my favorite outcome here. Let's, let's aim for that one. <laughs> I love that we have this space that we can ask people and say, is this a terrible idea? <laughs> Good idea, bad idea. You have to be willing to look a little bit silly on the internet. But if you are willing to look a little silly on the internet, you can learn so much. So true. <laughs> but yeah, that's some of what's up in my world, building some new things, seeking efficiency in all the places I can find it. But uh, yeah, what else is up uh, in your world? There is one other bit that I was very excited about in regarding Postgres, because circling back to the feature that I was walking through earlier, one of the things that we wanted to do as we are changing how we're locking, so we're going from locking on that restaurant ID to including the reservation time as well, we want to be able to turn this on for specific restaurants and then also be able to quickly turn it off just in case something goes awry. We don't have a robust feature flag system in place. That's something that we haven't added just yet. So putting this behind a feature flag wasn't an option for this feature. So instead, I added a Boolean column. And as I was adding a column to the restaurants, I'm not really sure how many restaurants there are. So it's always in the back of my mind anytime I'm doing a migration for something that I think could be of size. I go back to that strong migrations gym and I read that awesome list that they have that walks through what are safe operations and what are not safe operations. And the thing that I was excited about the most is there's a note in there that talks about adding a column with a default value and a null false constraint and how that can rewrite the table and then calls locks on that table as it's rewriting. But if you're on Postgres version 11 or greater, that's not true. And adding a column becomes a safe action. So adding a column with a non-volatile default value will not result in a table rewrite. And adding a not null constraint as well will require scanning that table, but it still doesn't require rewriting the table. And I got so excited because initially I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to add this column and then I'm going to have to set the default value and then add the not null constraint, sort of like go through that Postgres dance. But then I saw that and I was just, oh, I can I can just do this all in one go with one migration. So I was very excited about that. And I was kind of surprised too, because Postgres 11 has been out for a while. So I don't know if this is something that I just rediscovered today. That's the benefit of perhaps of forgetting things as you get excited again when you rediscover it. Or if I just haven't used Postgres 11 and all the projects that I've worked on. So super cool. This is definitely not something I knew off the top of my head. At a minimum, I would need to look it up. And I think my assumption would have been that this would lock the table. So it is exciting to know that that is not the case. This is getting into the weeds. But what does non-volatile value mean? Do they have a little footnote there that because now I'm worried again? <laughs> Such a good question. Yes, I had the same question as I was reading it said anything that's not volatile. I'm like, well, what's not volatile, friend? So to be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure what is volatile and what's non-volatile, but I'm confident that I was setting it to a Boolean and that's non-volatile. I think volatile is anything that has to be 
calculated on the fly. So perhaps like a timestamp, or if you're calling random for some reason, but something that has to be evaluated at that time that it's being written, I think that's what would count as volatile. Gotcha. It's more than good enough for me in this situation. So thank you. So switching gears just a bit, we have a listener question. This question comes from Julian, and Julian wrote in about Rails partials and view components. So specifically, they wrote, my templates are full of both ERB partials and view components, often both taking parameters with some conditionals and logic. If I need interactivity, I'll use view. But if I don't, question mark, question mark, what are the trade-offs and performance considerations? So it sounds like they're interested in perhaps some of the performance considerations or if they're just interested in knowing if they should stick to just ERB partials or just view components. I'm intrigued. What's your take on this question? Yeah, I think there's at least two sides to it. Um, From the performance perspective, honestly, I think things are probably relatively close to a wash at this point. I think historically, ERB partials had some overhead that... Um, cause them to use a lot of memory or, or be a good bit slower. I think Aaron Patterson fixed that like four Rails versions ago or something like that. So in my mind, when I think of using views or partials, I don't have performance considerations as a core idea, but that may be that I'm just, I've forgotten about it or decided not to care and it's still a thing. But broadly speaking, when I think about this sort of thing for myself, I'm not as worried about performance here. I'm thinking more about the ergonomics of how I'm working with things and really the switching back and forth. There are a few apps that I've actually worked on recently that ended up in this space where we wanted enough dynamic behavior. So we ended up with React or other things, React or Svelte in the two different application cases. And in one case we used, I want to say it's like Rails React or the React Rails Jam or something like that, but it allows you to, within the context of an ERB template, to say, render this React component, and then it will mount the component and do all the things. And so that like subtree could be React. But then we found a lot of awkwardness where like if we wanted, if we had a form on the page and then we wanted to put that form in a modal, well, the modals lived in React, but the regular stuff, the form lived in ERB land. And so that conversion, that like crossing over the boundary was really painful each time we needed to do it. We also needed to figure out how to serialize CSRF tokens across that boundary and deal with just a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I've definitely felt the pain of that and that like context switching and that weird little boundary that ends up there. Yeah, that's helpful to hear because most of the applications that I've worked in, or I should say all the applications I've worked in, I've been specifically in React land or I've been in Ember or I've been specifically in Rails. So I haven't felt that pain or that contention between having to switch constantly or it's been all Elm. So I haven't had to go back and forth between part of it's in React and part of it's in ERB. So when you were in that situation, did you find that it was still worth that trade-off to where you could still have that increased level of interactivity and those sprinkles of JavaScript? Or how did you approach the contention between those two? The experience where we had React and we were rendering it through the React Rails gem, I would describe it as the uncanny valley. It was this sort of awkward middle step where if we can stay really close to just regular Rails, HTML, ERB, that's great. That has a a wonderful cohesive story and everything kind of makes sense. And there's definitely reasons to move into client-side frameworks in my mind. You get just a different level of interactivity and that experience more and more, I think, is sort of an expectation. And so I've said it on many an episode recently, but that's where inertia actually happens to fit perfectly. So what inertia does is it allows you to put all of your view logic in it'll either be Vue, Svelte, or React. You pick one, you know, whichever of those is your rendering framework of the day. You pick that one, and then you're able to use it, but you're still binding to normal Rails routing, Rails controllers, Rails actions. You basically serialize data 
into those views. And then from there, all of the view rendering happens within the context of React components or Svelte components or view components. And that ends up being really nice. You get the reusability, you get the consistency in the view layer. And honestly, in my experience, in both the React and Svelte cases where I've worked with it, I also have TypeScript. And it turns out I really like TypeScript, especially for like pulling little pieces of the page around and shifting things. So I have found that to be hugely valuable. The alternative, just to throw it out there, it's not something that I've worked with, but there's Turbo and Stimulus Reflex, I think are, I don't know if you would use them together or I have not actually investigated them much, but I know that they're more recent additions to the Rails space that allow you to do higher levels of interactivity, but they're actually, as far as I understand it, using WebSockets, still rendering HTML, ERB stuff on the server, but then communicating it and sort of swapping it out in place. For me, again, I I really like the idea that, no, no, we're going to decide that all rendering now happens on the client side because there are always going to be some things that push me to need that. If I want to do a modal, well, actually, that's not a good example because I'm pretty sure they have modal examples over there. But in my experience, I have found that to be really beneficial, but I still want to cling to all the rest of the Rails good stuff. Specifically, routing is, I think, the real sticking point for me. When I work on apps that are React apps that have React Router or things like that, there's always, it, it feels off to me. There's flashes of layout that load and then suddenly you get redirected to the login page and it just doesn't feel right and you end up having to duplicate a lot of that logic because you still need to understand routing on the server side for various reasons if nothing else than to send down the javascript bundle and so i've found inertia to be this really perfect middle road Um, but if you prefer the other side of the aisle then i think turbo and stimulus reflex are really great options to stay in the more traditional rails view camp Uh, But honestly, the Rails view layer was probably my least favorite part of it the whole time. So I was fine with moving on to something else there. Yeah, my current project has stimulus in it, which is something that I haven't worked with. So I've been excited for an opportunity to get to work with stimulus and see what I think of it. That reusability portion that you alluded to feels very important to me because thinking back, there may have been an application that I worked on that was mostly in Elm, but then we had some pages, perhaps it was the admin that we are rendering in just HTML and using ERB templates for. And that felt fine because we didn't really need to duplicate across what we are showing users and then what we are showing admin users. But if we were to get to that space where we needed to duplicate across the two, but we wanted one to be in ERB and one to have more interactivity like in view, then that's something that I would start to reconsider that divide. And if we should just bring it all together, even if perhaps maybe the admin side doesn't need as much interactivity, but we want the consistency and the reusability of the code. I am trying to imagine a bit more of Julian's situation where this application is rendering. I'm going to take a guess here. That's rendering with the ERB templates and just HTML. They needed to add some interactivity. So then someone pulled in view. And so perhaps Julian and their team are feeling that pain. Perhaps it's the reusability that they're missing or the fact that they just have to context switch between the ERB templates then over to the view framework. And I'm curious, like at what point do you just buy-in to one or the other? Like, do you pull things back to where everything's in ERB? Or probably more likely, are you just going to buy into view? When when do you cross that threshold in your mind? This is definitely one of those heuristics sort of, you feel the pain, you talk about it in retro for a few weeks, and eventually you decide, okay, this is a thing that we we need to make a decision around. In my experience, it is very rare to roll back the fanciness. So it feels like a one-way trip, and we're always sort of moving more towards the client side and I've sort of accepted that JavaScript wasn't necessarily my first choice of programming languages, but 
the experiences, the sort of things that we can build are interesting to me. And so now a lot of my work is around how do we do that well? How do we do that in a way that I feel confident in that? How do we test and how do we TypeScript is a wonderful addition to that in my mind. And I find that it always trends in that direction. That said, you could find that actually let's let's pull it back. Let's say that we have one portion of the app that really warrants that complexity, the additional complexity of the high interactivity client side react bundle, whatever it is, but that's only one page. And actually for everything else, they're simple forms. It's just generally crud. And then we've got the one drag and drop WYSIWYG builder thing. That one page could be React and everything else could actually go back to Rails. But I would be surprised if a team actually took that tact. So knowing that or assuming that to be the case, my guess is uh, wait until you're really feeling the pain on this. But if you are, I cannot recommend Inertia.js enough. It is a really fantastic solution that allows you to still stay in the Rails world or Laravel or wherever you happen to be, but leverage those client-side technologies. So to be clear, I think you chose sneaky option three. There was continue on splitting the world between ERB and view templates. There was committing to view and you chose inertia <laughs> as the third. So inertia would imply choosing view for all of the view rendering. It's it's Got a fun it. name okay. of a project because it's the same phonetic word as I am rendering my view layer now. I <laughs> wish those two words did not sound identical as we're trying to have this conversation. Yes, inertia with it, it basically binds your front end to your back end, but you would be writing in either Vue or React or Svelte. But yeah, my suggestion is go all in on Vue. Inertia is a great way to get there. Have some fun. Don't build an API, though, because then it's a whole thing again. And don't do client-side routing, because that's also a whole thing. It's doable. Everybody does it. I feel like we don't need to do it. That's my stance. Cool. All of that sounds good to me. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is edited and produced by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed. And while we'd normally say we'll see you next week, we're actually going to be taking a quick week off for spring break or whatever the form of it is at this point in our lives. Uh, But we will see you the week after that. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Wow. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.